Okay, class. Today we're gonna start with the basics. Welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. I'm Pastor Eric, and I'm your host, and today we are continuing our conversation, What is the Gospel? Today we are going to hear the first part of a conversation that uh, myself and Paul Wells and Dan Hintz, our two guests, had about God and about what the Gospel tells us about God and how certain views of the gospel might distort how we understand God or might distort uh, the revelation of God found in the scripture. So this is a great conversation. And so uh, we'll have part one today and then part two next week. So be on the lookout for that. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you could, please go onto iTunes and give us a rating and leave us a review. Uh, That helps uh, the algorithm get our podcast up further on the list so that we can... uh, get more listeners and we can we can engage more people with the gospel so thank you guys so much for listening i hope you have a great weekend and let's get growing Life Lutheran Podcast. Thank you guys for joining us again. Uh, we are continuing our series, What is the Gospel? And I am here with my good friends, Mr. Paul Wells. Hello, because howdy and- is not appropriate. <laughs> yeah, you're not in Kansas, son. <laughs> you have to say, uh, we say hi, you guys, because we're up in the Midwest up here. And uh, of course, Daniel Hintz is with me as well. How y'all doing? <laughs> y'all, there we go. There we go. <laughs> All right, we are continuing our conversation uh, based around the book by N.T. Wright, Simply Good News, where he explores the gospel. Um, The three of us um, are from three different theological backgrounds, have different theological leanings, and so we are discussing the gospel, uh, kind of using N.T. Wright as a fourth conversation partner to just tease out some of the implications of the gospel and how God works and how God has saved us. So as always, let's start off, just get an overview of the chapter, kind of give us an idea of what we're going to be talking about. And Danger Danimal, I think that it is your your turn to give us our, our overview. So Dan, why don't you do that for us? Yeah, I, that is a new nickname for me, Eric. I, I'm going to have to Dangerous Danimal. Yeah, it just makes me think of the yogurt from like the early 2000s, like the Danimals yogurt. You know what's great about about that is I think that is a fantastic reflection of young, younger millennials just being like, I do not have enough time to eat yogurt with a spoon. I need it in a tube so I can eat my yogurt as fast as I can. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Got stuff to do. <laughs> Pleasantries aside, uh, let's let's dive into uh, this chapter. So uh, this chapter, uh, chapter seven of the book, um, simply good news, um, is entitled "Surprised by God," um, and so it will come as no surprise that the major topic is kind of God and the way He has been viewed over um, basically all of human history. And he right is kind of painting in fairly large brush strokes once again, um, but also kind of doing that to make the point that the way we see God in twenty first in the 21st century is not all that different from the way that 
people were seeing God back in like the ancient Greek and Roman world. He kind of starts out by saying like the idea of the Christian God that um, he is talking about in this book is not the same caricature of the Christian God that the average person on the street would have because they saw a cartoon in the New York um, where it's, you know, a vision of a white man with a beard sitting in some clouds. Um, and that that kind of caricature is a carryover from centuries of philosophical traditions that have done one of two things to God. Um, it has either kind of um, said that God is a totally removed from humanity, uh, kind of like we talked about the um, previous weeks, the split level nature of there's heaven and there's earth, and those things are totally separate. Um, and that God is, at one point, he kind of makes the analogy that God is kind of like a, a negligent landlord, that he owns the property and we can blame him when bad things happen, but he's not around enough to really be involved with with the day-to-day operations of the place. The other kind of view of God is that it's really, it's not God as much as it's a divine force that is in and around and through everyone, and so that we are all kind of um, participants in this divine force that, um, you know, something like a more of an an Eastern spirituality kind of approach to things that I have God within me and I can live that, live that truth and and, and that sort of thing. And so he, he basically says that with the, what we call the Dark Ages, which we've talked about before, are not really like the dark ages, but um, there, that there was a reemergence of this idea of a central God character um, who kind of had this reputation or was portrayed as kind of this bully, this judge, this, you know, person who was ju- or this this figure who was just there to kind of meddle in the affairs of humans and make sure that they, you know, basically did what they were supposed to do or he was going to send them to hell. And um, then with the Reformation and some of the things that came after that, with the secular world, they solved that problem by saying, well, that God really doesn't exist, like, which is where you get to the the new atheism of, you know, like Richard Dawkins or some of the the famous Mm. atheists of the 21st century is, well, this God who is just this cruel bully who just makes people listen to him or he punishes them, that's that's a fantasy God. And you can just relax because that God doesn't exist. And so that's how the secular world world solved that problem. The the Christian world kind of solved that by saying, oh, it's okay because um, Christ has died. And by his sacrifice, he has paid the price for that punishment. And so you can have a right relationship with God because Christ died. But the problem is that Christian view, um, as N.T. Wright points out, gets misinterpreted. And it basically says it, it does nothing to counteract the fact that What's wrong is that initial perception of God, that he is just a bully who is going to make us do what he wants us to do. Because all we're doing is saying, yes, he is a bully, but someone else took that punishment for you. And we're not addressing the fundamental claim that, no, God is not a bully. That God's fundamental character is a creator who makes the world and sustains the world and will recreate the world solely motivated by love and by his love for his good creation. Um, and so therefore in the public consciousness and the average person, and he, he makes it, makes it very clear that he doesn't think everyone thinks this, but anyone who has really given it some serious thought probably doesn't take these ideas seriously, but a lot of people haven't given it very serious thought. And so the gospel hinges on this idea that 
not only is all of the good news about Jesus and and um, you know what we've talked about in pr- the preceding episodes true, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. the way that we see God is fundamentally different than the you know that stereotypical perception mm-hmm. because he, he is a God who is actively involved, who has sent his Son Jesus to be to become a human, to share in the pain, but also to embody what he wants to accomplish um, with the new creation and in remaking things in according to his his you know his good plan. So again, he he kind of paints in broad strokes in a lot of this chapter, but uh, you know a lot of it just hinges on this idea that the way that we perceive God is um, very important to understanding why the good news of Jesus matters so much. You know, it was interesting because last time he was N.T. Wright was so much more particular than he had ever been thus far in the book. Uh, when he talked about some of the implications, particularly, you know, really kind of like really hammering home the social implications of the gospel. And then it felt like this chapter, he like went back up to 30,000 feet. It was just like, I'm going to give the broad overview and I'm only going to drop down and give particulars on these like one or two specific things that I need to re- that that we need to kind of redefine are the words that we use or redefine the images that we use. Um, and again, that first one was God as uh, the old man with the with the white beard, and then God as bully were kind of the two places that he's like, we're just going to camp on these two things that are kind of popular in our culture and we're going to kind of re rework them a little bit um and and put the right definitions here instead of what our popular culture says i think one thing in this chapter that i was kind of surprised by a little bit was i don't know nice surprised (laughs) nice (laughs) um is i don't know to me it seemed more like he was talking about gnosticism in that we look at the God of the Old Testament and say, well, that can't oh, be the same guy that does sure. what's going on in the New Testament. Sure. But he never really – he attributes that to other other philosophies and that maybe that could just be a shallow understanding of Gnosticism on my part. But it, it, mm-hmm. it felt like Gnosticism fit pretty well into what he was talking about and addressed a lot of the stuff. I mean that was yeah. pretty early on in church history. That's like second, second century in the yeah. church. Um, but he never he never really got there. And maybe you know maybe that's more the enlightenment piece he was trying to focus on mm. in our current philosophy. Mm. But yeah. I think that Gnosticism plays a role in our in our current philosophy, and that we like yeah. to we like to stay away from the wrathful God of the Old Testament and focus on Jesus and his homies hanging out, yeah. and washing each other's feet. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would suspect that more people on a popular level are going to know Richard Dawkins than they are Gnostic, the Gnostic heresy. <laughs> that's fair. Um, yeah. And so that, and so I, I bet that that's probably what's going on is that he's just kind of like opting for the popular view that most that that maybe not even most that that people are more likely to to know. The casual reader might have heard the term Gnosticism, but probably hasn't probably doesn't really know what what it is but the casual reader probably more than likely has heard of richard dawkins and know what kind of know what he's about so well you know when, when you were kind of working through that then you mentioned you know respond responding to the enlightenment that's what i would probably suspect 
mm-hmm. um, is going on, that there may be a little bit more like present, more recent um, issues that he's trying to address. But I'm not sure. So what did you guys uh, think about his first kind of initial argument where he he kind of works out and teases out what the popular culture uh, sees as, you know, when, when we say God, um, you know, he kind of starts off talking about how when we say God, that's kind of a clunky word in our culture. You know, he talked about the political cartoons or he talked about uh, the, the comic strips um, in the newspaper. Like it kind of conjures up this image of an old man with a white beard sitting up in the clouds. Uh, what what do you guys think about that? Do you think that that's kind of a correct identification um, that people kind of think of God as kind of removed or a little bit uh, obtuse, um, a little bit distant? Is that is that what you think popular culture kind of perceives as God? Certainly, there is an element of popular culture that sees God that way, because obviously those are images that persist in popular mm-hmm. culture, right? Um, you know, the the perception or the the portrayal of God in you know television, in movies, in stories is pretty consistently, mm-hmm. you know, that picture. And it, it it almost has become at this point a you know a shorthander as well as what yeah, it is. Yeah, it, it, a, it really is. It's yeah. It, it's it's a meme. It's it's like the Grim Reaper. Right. You know. Right. Like that is yeah. a that is a a visual shorthand for death. Yeah. yeah. And a a glowing man in a white robe and a beard is a visual shorthand for God. Yeah. Um. Now I think if pressed, and again this is where I think N.T. Wright kind of points out, like people who give it serious thought don't hold to that idea of God. Mm-hmm. But the thing with popular culture is that it oftentimes doesn't force you to give things a lot of thought. Because if mm-hmm. I can reduce it down to here is here is the vision or the, the image that I can hold in my mind, I therefore don't need to explore it any further because I have grasped it and understood it and moved beyond it. Mm-hmm. And he, he makes the point that, that to think that way about God is... A, a gross misunderstanding mm-hmm. because God isn't some that w- someone that we just, oh, I need to understand this so that I can hold a picture of him in my mind and then move on. Yeah. Um, you know, so, oh, do I believe in God? Well, I have to, I have to know that I can understand him. He's like, no, 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 no. God understands you. You don't mm-hmm. understand God. Um, you know, he says, the idea that you might begin by looking this god up and down, giving him a cool appraisal, and then if you understood and approved of him, you might respond to him, is to deny that he is god at all. So I, I think, to answer the original question, in popular culture, I do think that is a, a in some cases, that's a fair, um, fair assessment. But I, I think it's just because people don't think about it, you know, a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, oh, that's an easy thing, of course. Of course, that's that must be what these Christians believe or that must be what people believe because that's what I saw in Sunday school or that's what I've seen on TV or, you know, whatever. I think the thing that was running through my mind as I was, as I was reading that is um, I think there's a, there is a part of the population that depersonalizes God in that sort of distant deistic removed old man sort of way. And then I also think that there's a part of the culture, Christian culture, that over-personalizes God. Um, and what uh, what I mean by that is I think both of them lack a reverence 
for God. And so we either make him, um, for example, um, <laughs> I heard somebody say one time in a prayer, you know, like, homie God. Okay, homie God. <laughs> well, that is a lack of reverence, I think, in the same way that that picturing God as, you know, a doddering old man mm-hmm. kind of removed from things is a lack of a lack of reverence. And that kind of speaks to that idea of if you really sat down and thought about the implications of a being that figured out how to create his own universe, you know, mm-hmm. um, there's no way that either one of those pictures fits. Right really sitting down and thinking about it. It kind of make, makes you think about the kind of the old pastor's joke about the scientist who went up to God and was like, Hey, we don't need you anymore. Cause I figured out how to make, I figured out how to make people. So we don't need you. Mm-hmm. And God goes, Oh, okay, well let's see what you've done. And so the pastor or the, the scientist bends down and grabs a handful of dirt and God says, Oh no, no, you have to get your own dirt. Mm. And it's just, that's that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Daniels, you mentioned, as you were talking, you know, that, that word meme came up in my head, uh, that really like, like the kind of image that we have of God is a way to one, remove him from us, uh, to move him out of a place of reverence in our society. And then also to reference not only God, but also kind of Christian belief as Mm -hmm. kind of using the shorthand of, you know, and so then, yeah, God just becomes a reference. It becomes a meme that we can make jokes about um, by referencing God. So, right, you know, you think like kind of like, uh, you know, think of like South Park or Monty Python and the Holy Grail when they talk to God. You know, like these kinds of things. Like it becomes a reference, but not really representing any real thing or any real right. actual belief or theology. It's just a meme. It's just a reference to a reference, um, right? And doesn't actually establish uh, real, real Christian thought or real theology. And and I think that that N.T. Wright is correct. And if you kind of peel back the layer and you look at it seriously, then it all kind of falls apart. And it, but I do it requires think that, it requires the individual to bring a lot to fill out the picture. Yes, that's right. That's right. It may it, it requires it requires you understanding something about Christians and something about uh, how you perceive Christian belief. Um, usually, as a dumb, dull, idiotic, blind faith in a meager old man creating the world. I also think that there's something to uh, the fact that that's also a very pagan way of thinking about God. Yeah. Um, you know, in the Greek world, the gods are just people. <laughs> you know, they're just humans. Mm-hmm. They're just they're just superheroes, humans with with unbelievable powers. That's what they are. Um, and they have all the faults of, you know, I, I think that the Greek I think that the Greek pantheon of gods is what um, D- Daniel, who's the guy who wrote The Watchmen? Uh, Alan Moore. Alan Moore. I think that that is kind of like Alan Moore's version of superheroes. If you just gave superheroes all the power, they would just become a pantheon of Greek gods. And in fact, mm-hmm. I just thought about this. In fact, in the Avengers, one of the last scenes, I think it was the first Avengers, they actually like shoot they actually show a pan shot of a statue of the superheroes 
in kind of the Greek, the Greco-Roman hero style, like literally like like mm-hmm. seeing them as gods. So anyway, so they're really Greek gods are just humans with superpowers. And lots of people have that view of of the God of Scripture as just a man sitting up in the clouds waiting for you to mess up so he can zap you with a lightning bolt. Like they, they literally mm-hmm. believe in Zeus. And I've met I've had Christians I've had people in my churches that have thought of God that way. Just and it's literally been Zeus. They've literally believed in Zeus, just a man waiting for you to mess up so he can zap you. It's kind of sad because so to get into the small detour into additional popular culture. Um, Eric, you know, you and I have had conversations about how much we love superhero movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> how much we quote-unquote uh, love superhero movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think there are good superhero movies, but I think there are few and far between. Um, but we have reached the point now in popular culture um, where w- we are kind of moving into a like a post-superhero kind of a thing where now that a lot of the stories are about, well, what if superheroes were like, just like us? Um, you know, there's yeah. a couple TV shows I can think of off the top of my head and, you know, and, and stories about like, well, what if the superheroes were not heroic, but what if they had the same problems and foibles and, you know, were just as flawed as the rest of us, which is what um, Zack Snyder tried to do with the DC universe. Yeah. And, yeah, or and the, did not do it well, might I add. <laughs> no. No, because there, there's there's something kind of sad about oh here's your heroes on oh, they're they're sad and flawed and broken just like you, but that that's kind of another element of the cultural consciousness is we have a distrust for heroes right now, right? right? We have a distrust for these larger than life figures because all of our stories and frankly you know all of the the news is you know about. Oh, hey, this person you thought was awesome, actually, you know, they were a problematic figure. Um, Here's the the skeletons in their closet. And so the idea that, oh, there would be a a god who has all of that power, has all of that, um, you know, the the limitless ability. Um, There's no way that could be a good guy. Right? Like, there's absolutely no way. Like, why should I trust him? Because... I see what that does to people, and now you're talking about a god with no one to hold him accountable, with nothing to to stop him. Like, you know, there's a fundamental distrust of authority in the world that we live in right now. And so, you know, God as the ultimate authority, I think, is um, if people do think about him, you get this this distrust of yeah, it's, that seems like there's probably some some things there that. Uh, why would I trust that? Which is really what, like, the radical atheists, or maybe that's, is that not right? the right word for them? Um, I don't know what they call Mil- themselves. Militant. Richard Dawkins. Richard yeah, Dawkins. The, the, the new atheists, I think, is what they call new themselves. New atheists, that's what it is, not radical. Mm. New atheists. Um, which is really what they what they were saying, right? Like, they weren't they weren't actually that interested in in trying to prove metaphysically and scientifically that there was no spiritual being. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what they were trying to do was was debunk the Christian view of God by pointing out what you just said, Daniel. Like, if there is a God who's all-powerful, 
and all-knowing and all-loving than one apparent indiscretion, then he's just a horrible monster. Um, it's kind of what they did. That that was their their way of arguing against uh, against the God. Which, which to me is just crazy. And I I know that probably like Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins would have you know would have a a better answer and would probably tell me I'm crazy. But is you can't call somebody a monster if you have no standard to appeal to. And that, to me, is where that new atheism really breaks down. Is that because it's very moralistic? Yeah, new atheism. New atheism is very moralistic. Yeah, yeah. A, a monster by whose standards? Right. And that's that's part of the problem. I had a and a coworker, new atheist, and and you know, I was he he and I were having a conversation about this, really about determinism, mm-hmm. and and I said. I said one of my biggest problems with atheism, particularly new atheism, is I said you make these moral claims, but then the end result of your of your theology is that I'm just a bag of stardust, mm-hmm. and who's to say it's wrong for this bag of stardust to run into another bag of stardust in any one way? Mm-hmm. And and his exact his exact quote to me was. Yeah, I don't like thinking about that. It makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Now I'm not. I'm that. You know, that's one new atheist. Right. Um, right. But it, I think it shows that we have this. Um, Romans in the beginning of it talks about how um, God has put in us the knowledge of of His divinity. Yeah. And it just shows that innately we know that there is a standard. That we know there is something, something more that we are accountable to. Right. The problem is that we have we have made it this, you know, this old bearded man in the sky, and that's right. not that's not very appealing. Yeah, because I'd probably have to show him how to check his email and how to do the Facebook. <laughs> You know, and and at this point in in our world, you'd have to teach him how to use Zoom, which right. would be a nightmare. And and it would be the the computer camera would be looking up his nose, and you'd uh-huh. only see about half his face. Yeah, which is okay because if you didn't see his whole face, you would die because. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man, you know, N.T. Wright. One of my uh, one of my beefs with this chapter is that. Uh, which I haven't had a whole lot of like issue of being like, no, I wish that, you know, I think that he needed to do this. Uh, one of the things I wish he would have done, he he teased it and then didn't really fulsomely draw it out, um, is that when we look at Jesus first and then work toward God through Jesus, um, that presents us with a much different picture than the kind of the popular perception of old man with a beard uh, in the sky. By the way, I just want to point out that that image of the old man with the robe and the golden sash with white hair that's glowing, uh, that's actually in Scripture, uh, in Revelation chapter 1, but it's not God, it's Jesus. (laughs) 
So, so even in popular, mm-hmm. even in the popular culture, uh, that they're not quite getting that one right. But that's in John's in John's. What are you, what are you talking about, Eric? Jesus Jesus was a semi-attractive Middle Eastern man with long, no, flowing no. hair. Yeah, he was like. a semi he was a semi-attractive German man with long. <laughs> Blonde hair and blue eyes, as we all know from all of those good. Uh, and he, good he alternatively wore blue and red sashes yes. exclusively, just yeah, those exclusively. two colors. Yeah, that's right. And nobody else wore a sash, just him. Just yeah. him. Everyone else had brown, had brown cloaks. <laughs> yeah. uh, he had a white one. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I just think that's funny that our perception is kind of built on an image that John the Revelator received. Of Jesus with white hair, uh, not necessarily the Father. Anyway, so how does Jesus um, working from Jesus toward God? How does that change how we understand God, or how we imagine God, or how we understand how He's worked in the world? I think that N.T. Wright made this point in a previous chapter, um, but Jesus is uh, surprising. Uh, he is not who we expect Him to be if we. You know, take him at face value. Um, you know, if we actually read what he read what he said and and look at the things that he did, that's that's not what someone who would come claiming to be king or God or anything should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but as a result of that, like we we have a a fairly developed picture of Jesus and his ministry, right? Like we we have a picture. It talks about in Colossians, like. He is the image of the invisible God, and that you know, I think I think it's reductionist to say that um, God is um, not clearly portrayed in in Scripture. Yeah. I think that like that's You're that's right. not the case. But right. um, there are there are aspects of his character where you know we we, we don't relate to him as a person because he's not a person, right? He is he is outside of creation. Um, and so we, we we cannot know him in the same way that we can know a human being. Right. And so to have Jesus, who is both a human being and also fully God, mm-hmm. um, you know, acts as um, the the scriptural word is mediator. I think the, the word that comes to my mind is is translator mm. to take, you know, the human experience that I can understand and give us what what God looks like in that human experience. And therefore I can start to extrapolate, oh, what is God really like? Because I can see, I can see him through this, this human lens of Jesus. Okay. Um, and I think it gives us a better entry point mm-hmm. to who God truly is. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if we understand that like, yeah, we're not gonna, it's not our goal to understand God. Um, yeah. It's our goal to, to trust God, you know, to, mm-hmm to to have faith in him mm. and to to believe that oh you know, he is who he says he is and he is the one who is actually you know carrying out this plan it, it makes me think of john chapter one the very beginning where it says you know in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and he was in the beginning with god that i mean that whole that whole passage mm-hmm. and so taking that person of Jesus and what we see of him and putting him alongside the God that we read in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, pardon me, yeah. as right there, a part mm-hmm. of what was happening 
Mm-hmm. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has not come into being. So he was there right. for all of it. Right. And also makes me think um, the the Israelites. Not only were they not supposed to make idols, but they weren't supposed to make images of God either. Right. right. Um, and there's part of me that makes me think, is that sort of, so the Israelite meme of God, would that not have tainted the view yeah. of God coming in the, in the flesh when Jesus came? Right. Cause, cause the, cause the Jewish people had a hard time, hard enough time accepting it anyways. And, and, and we would have too, right? If we'd grown yeah. up, if we'd grown up Jews in that time, we, we probably would have would have struggled with that as well. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so I think that sort of picture of seeing God, seeing Jesus as there's a lot of there's a lot of imagery or a lot of I don't, I would, I don't want to call it imagery. There's a lot of things that happen in the Gospel of John that point back to the Old Testament that kind of shape it in a new light. One of those things is when Jesus rises out of the tomb and they mistake him as a gardener. Mm-hmm. And isn't and so Jesus is sort of the second Adam, right? And what was Adam? He was put in the garden. And he garden, was a right. he was a gardener, and That's so right. you almost get this picture of God as the perfect gardener, the perfect right. tender, the one who restores things, the one who brings yeah. life and fullness. And that sort of yeah. if you that kind of casts a back shadow towards um, towards the Old Testament and gives you a different picture of this sort of wrathful, right. I don't know if that makes yeah, any sense at all. No, that does. No, actually that makes, no, that makes, that makes sense. That's good sense. Um, by the way, uh, in fact, that's how Paul, well, what we see in Paul is he, he knows the scripture so well. And then when this, when he's filled with the spirit, when he's baptized and filled with the spirit, it's like, I guess I should say when the gospel is proclaimed to him, um, by Ananias, it it's like it's like something changed in his mind, and then when he goes back and reads the scriptures, the Old Testament again, he starts unlocking all the pieces, all the implications, and that's what we see in his letters. Is just this like, I mean, just a ridiculous amount of allusions and quotes and all sorts of stuff back to the Old Testament. Um, because now he's reading through the Old Testament again and realizing just what you mentioned, Paul, that the whole time it was all gearing up for Jesus. You know, and in fact, you talked about um, the Israelites not being allowed to make um, idols, right? Images of God. Uh, the fun fact um, for you and for all of our listeners at home, um, the, the word for idol is the word for image in Genesis 2 when God says let us make man in our image so so is the Israelites weren't allowed to make idols because they were the idols they were the images of God in the world um, and so it makes perfect sense that God would then come as as one of us as one of the images one of the image bearers uh, to perfect and to recreate that image um, which is exactly what John highlights uh, with the with the garden scene, uh, with the with the new Adam scene in the garden. Yeah, so you were right on, man. You were tapping into a very like 
deep, multi-layered like rereading of the Old Testament that most people have done. <laughs> most most people haven't thought about doing. Um, but I think you're right on. Um, I think when we look at Jesus, we, you know, you know, part of what part of what I think is I think that I would point to Philippians two. I think it's Philippians two. I'll, I'm just going to say Philippians, um, <laughs> the 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 self emptying self emptying passage. Mm-hmm. Um, where Jesus, although he was um, equal with God, did not consider that equality something to be grabbed or grasped or uh, clung to, uh, but emptied himself, but actually sacrificed himself. That kenosis is the Greek word. Emptied himself. Um, the, to me, um, what we see in Jesus is a man who is so self-sacrificially loving that he's willing to be humiliated by his creation. In order to save them, um, which I think is what we see in the Old Testament too—a God who is willing to be humiliated, willing to be disobeyed, um, and gives the law, gives threat: if you do this, you're going to die. Um, and then they do it, and he says, "You're going to die, but redemption's coming." And so he like uh, he continually allows himself to be humiliated. Uh, by his creation. Um, so that's what I would point to, um, which again, you go back and you reread the whole Old Testament with that lens and you begin to see it come up again and again and again and again. Like why in the world would God choose Jacob instead of Esau? Well, if Paul's right, it's because he's trying to frustrate. It's self-emptying. He's willing to be humiliated by literally choosing somebody whose name means deceiver instead of a big, burly, masculine, manly man named Esau. He's trying to make a point that he is self-sacrificing and does not do what we would expect. And the way that we would practice power, he does not practice it that way. 